Shalom, shalom, friends. It's a delight to be here for session nine of 10 on our Musar series, Building Yourself One Trade at a Time, a 10-part spiritual journey into Musar, here with Rabbi Lauren Berman. Session nine, Betachon, talking about trust. Thank you, Rabbi Shmueli. Hi, everybody. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me once again. We've been on quite the tour over the last eight or nine weeks. A lot of Midot, Hitlam Dut, Anava, Hakarat Hatov, Zrizut, Kavod, Chesed, Savanut. And last week was Seder. Just as a reminder, all of the texts that we are using, plus the recordings, they're all available in the slideshow, which you have access to. The light or the heavy lifting of actually working on these Midot, however, those are not on the pages, but the texts to inspire you most certainly are. So we are on our ninth Midah today. Wow, our ninth Midah. And I would say if there is a Midah I struggle with the most, second to Seder, which we did last week, it would be the one that we're going to be doing today, which is Bitachon. Uh, Emunah and Bitachon oftentimes go together. Emunah, let's say loosely translated as faith, as belief. Bitachon as trust. We're going to go into that in more detail. So there you go. I struggle with faith. I struggle with trust. I said it. Faith and trust, emuna and bitachon, they are quite difficult. But the fact that they are midot in the Musar tradition tells me that those of us who do struggle, either constantly or from time to time, we are following in the steps of many, many greats. Many greats. So today we will learn about the midah of bitachon. Literally, bitachon means trust. Though in modern Hebrew, bitachon is generally associated with security as in national security, or if someone is batuach, they are sure of something. They are sure in their knowledge. Uh, they trust themselves enough to be sure of something. They have confidence. Bitach atzmi, bitachon atzmi. It's confidence. Uh, maybe you know the expression betach. Betach, betach, of course, of course, but surely. So this is the midah of bitachon. This is what we're going to be doing today. I want us to start, though, with a bit of a meditation. Just a bit of a reflection, just for a couple of minutes. And this is from Rabbi David Jaffe. So we're just going to pause for a moment. You can take your hands off the keyboard if you want. You could turn off your video. You could leave your video on. It's up to you. Just lean back, relax. Just notice your body. Notice your body in the seat, your feet on the ground. Take three nice, relaxed in-breaths and out-breaths, balloon breaths, where you can feel your tummy really, really expanding. Take three nice breaths. What this meditation is about and what we're going to be doing today is bitachon, or trust. And in that spirit, Call to mind something that you might be feeling fear about or a challenge you're facing right now at this time. Something you might be feeling fear about or a challenge you're facing. Notice that, feel that, that fear that challenge, that difficulty. And now notice that you are not facing 
this challenge alone. That it doesn't exist in a vacuum in itself. But you and this struggle are in a larger context, in a web of community. So call to mind one, maybe two people you know you can count on. It can be friends, family members, bring them into your mind. Who do you know is really with you? Who can you count on? Who can you trust? Okay, I welcome you to open your eyes. You can turn on your videos. If you've had your videos off, we're back. Hello. Bitachon, trust, confidence, security. It's traditionally a midah that's directed towards Hashem, towards God, that we have trust in God, that the world is being taken care of, that everything happens for some reason, even when it's impossible to detect it and that all will work out. For our purposes, we will focus on God. But as in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, a higher power, any higher power is all we need in order to deal with bitachon here. Placing that trust in a higher power, that could mean in nature, in love, in the universe, in community, you name it. Something that is greater than us as individuals, this higher power. Bitachon is trust in a higher power, and therefore, Bitachon assumes some belief or some relationship with that higher power, who we're going to call today God. And having Bitachon is hard, and as it's prerequisite of emunah or belief or faith, both of those are very difficult. How can we believe in a God when so many of us, we find these questions, questions of past generations now can be explained by science. Even if we did believe in that God, how could we have bitachon or trust or confidence in that God when we look around for just two minutes? It's so easy and we'll see that the world is broken. And how unmendable the world can feel. Who are those who rely on God? They are some of the ones who, this might be triggering, died in the Holocaust in Europe because they thought that all would go well and we don't have to escape. Bitachon's assumption of emunah in God is challenging, and Bitachon itself is equally difficult. Of course, we're not the only ones who struggle with this. Verses abound in the Torah encouraging Bitachon for the righteous and the wicked among us alike. Had everyone had perfect Bitachon, there would be no need to have verse after verse, narrative after narrative, driving home this important midah bitachon. This belief in Hashem, sometimes called faith, is the midah of emunah. Some understand it as loyalty, but I think, to just to keep things simple, if such a thing can be said about something like emunah, some, if we can say emunah, faith is anything simple, it's that it's belief in a higher power. And as with all midot, there might be a spectrum of emunah, Chazal, the sages of the Talmud, even made distinctions between those with strong, fervent emunah and those who were katane emunah, katne emunah. They are small believers. 
They believed in the basic tenets, but not so much more. The latter may inspire fear or ensure deterrence from crossing a line, but a more balanced emunah, more balanced faith might inspire love and proactivity. Personally, I imagine the spectrum of, of emunah on one end that, that that person might believe that there is something out there, like there must be something out there. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what my relationship with it is, but this world and the physical things I experience, is that all? The person on one end of emunah might say, no, that's, that, it can't be it. I, I don't know what, it, what it's all about, but there's more to it than I can see. That could be a deity. Maybe not. And at the other end could be emunah shlema, full articulated belief that God created the heavens and the earth, gave us the Torah, etc. That's all we're going to say about emunah for now, mainly as a precondition for bitachon, the trust in that subject of emunah. So one distinction I've seen made between emunah, faith, and bitachon, trust, is that emunah is intellectual, perhaps even theoretical, and bitachon is emotional. It's practical. So what is bitachon? What is bitachon? We're going to start with three classic models of bitachon. One is that everything's going to be okay for me. If I'm good, good things will happen. If I'm not, bad things will happen. But ultimately, you know, if I, if, I, if I behave well, things are going to turn out okay for me. This is both an attitude that one can adopt after something happens, right? Like something bad happened. Oh, but like, it's okay. It's going to be fine. But it also impacts the efforts that one puts in to shape one's own reality. One with this orientation critiques others who makes an effort to shape their worlds as a sign that they lack bitachon. We have voices in, there in our tradition who actually advocate for this position. They say, if you are making a human effort, you're not showing bitachon. If you had so much bitachon, why not just stop there and trust that I'll be well with you? That's one model of bitachon. A second model is that everything is for the best, for the collective, eventually. Everything's for the best, for us all, for humanity, not necessarily for me personally, and not necessarily now, eventually. There's an arc of history and it bends towards blessing. This position says, Rabbi Akiva has a saying that that all that God does, God does it for the good. And the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, actually codifies this and says those words should be on our lips too. That all that God does, God does for the good. Now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm thinking, well, what if I don't think God did it? That's a, that's a question. Rabbi Akiva's teacher, actually, one of Rabbi Akiva's teachers, not a student, his teacher, one of his teachers was a man by the name of Nahum Ish Gamzu. He was known to say something similar, and we'll see that later. This suggests that everything that happens will eventually push us towards progress, even if in that moment, it seems like anything but. Admittedly, these two positions are really hard to accept, sometimes more than others. One says, I trust that everything will work out for me. And the other one says, I trust that everything will work out for all of us, for humanity, eventually. And then there's a third position. And this third position does not explicitly make a value judgment on what happens in this world. 
It doesn't say that what happens is or will be good or not. It is simply, quote unquote, it is simply that if such a thing can be said, that there are no coincidences. As we discussed last time, the world is ordered. There's some map or some blueprint through which the world was created. And the one who wrote that blueprint and the architect behind the world for our purposes is God. There's a plan, but none of us knows it. We are one in our group here, a few of seven plus billion people living on this earth. And this universe is what, 15 plus billion years old? I, I, I almost think we shouldn't be able to make any conclusive statements about anything, given our very, very small, small, you know, small position in this very, very vast world. But the idea in this model of Vitachon is that there are no coincidences, that what happens in this constructed world is part of God's plan, God's decree. And indeed, this can be, and I would say often is tragic. I'm not sure what is more tragic or painful, the actual tragedies and murders and oppression that we see now and that we've seen throughout history, or the fact that we'll never know to what end any of this stuff happens. We're in a movie and we don't see it to completion. When one has this level of bitachon, some say we're able to receive a Ruach HaKodesh, a Holy Spirit, a divine, a divine inspiration to see that everything will turn out for the good. That's similar to our second model. So this third model of bitachon doesn't say everything's good, right? It says bad things will happen, but there's some reason for it, or we can do something with it that it's not, that, that life doesn't stop there, that we can actually make meaning of these things. So these are three models of bitachon. Everything will work out for us personally. Everything works out for humanity, bit by bit, and everything fits into a plan. And we're in, this, we're in the middle of this drama and we're never at the end of it. To make some of this more practical, as these models suggest, bitachon is knowing that there are things that are outside of our control more than we'd like to think. And that's okay. We don't need to be in control. We can't be in control of everything. That's bitachon at a minimum. Simply being okay with uncertainty and failure, foregoing a sense of ownership and entitlement because ultimately we're not in control. A stronger sense, a stronger sense of bitachon and one that connects the word bitachon or trust or security itself is that we look outwards towards God and trust. We trust, we have bitachon, that God is at the wheel, even if we're not. It's like we're driving. I like to think of it as we're driving on the road. And at some point, we're just so tired. We need to pull over and rest. Say, hey, God, can you, can you take over for a few minutes? That's how I picture it. We're challenged to sense Hashem's presence and role in this world to help us not feel alone, to help us feel that even when the world is so broken, it's not going to self-destruct, that even when my life is not where I want it to be and all I'm seeing is tragedy, that yes, I do have a limited perspective of this world, which as we said, is billions of years old, and billions of other human beings just like me. And that maybe, just maybe, I can make meaning of what feels so unfortunate. 
balanced, we've only been talking right now about trusting God, but what about us as humans, right? So balanced, balanced with this trust in God, balanced with bitachon is what we would call hishtadlut or hishtadlus. Hishtadlus or hishtadlut is true effort. Knowing that God is in control or at least is protecting the world doesn't mean that we have no role and have no need to make an effort to succeed and perfect this world. The principle of Hishtadlus says that we must act. We cannot rely on miracles, even if they might happen. We have to wear masks during pandemics, even if we know Hashem is a healer. We are not, we, the, the tradition would say, we're not stupid, pious people. We're not a chassid shote. We have human brains. It's a gift. And to the extent that we're able-bodied, we are equipped with the physical means to move and to build. We are active beings. When pursuing a vision of any kind, we, we, we engage in hishtadlut, or sincere effort. Of course, this makes sense. We are partners with God. We share responsibility. God might be, maybe we say the senior partner for a law firm, and, uh, or maybe God is the named partner or the unnamed partner, as the case may be. But in this partnership, both of us act and pick up the slack for the other. This is hishtadlut. But we don't try and try and try forever. If we have bitachon, we also know that as important as hishtadlut, as important as human effort is, I ultimately cannot control the outcome. I can only control my efforts, not the outcome of those efforts. As some say, do your best and let God do the rest. Hishtadlut tells me to act and push the boundaries of what I thought was possible. And in a balanced bitachon tells me, hey, it's okay to rest and let God take over. As many of us know from Pirkei Avot, that it's not up to you to finish the task, but neither is it on you to desist from it. Meaning we don't have to finish it, but we need to try. If I fail and it feels like God didn't take over or that God you know, drove this car into a ditch, Bitachon tries to remind me of two things. One, that there's always a bigger picture. And it's okay if I don't feel that way. At some point, once the pain has subsided, maybe that will change for me. I think if a lot of us, if we look back in our lives, we could think of moments which felt so terrible in that moment in our personal lives, and yet we've grown from them. Or we've seen how it brought us to some next step in our life that took us to where we are now. And second of all, Bitachon in these moments comes to tell us, like Viktor Frankl, that we can make meaning, that we can make meaning of the situations that life throws at us. So from all of this, Bitachon, I think we see, isn't something you have or you don't have. You might have more or less stronger or weaker bitachon. On the one hand, you might believe in some force out there and some purpose, but that its ongoing impact in the universe is small. That form of bitachon calls me to act and to take responsibility. But the risk here is that we'll work too hard and we'll never know when it's time to take a rest. In fact, the Musser book, Chavor Alevavot, says that the essence, this is important, the essence of true bitachon is menuchat hanefesh tranquility, resting of the soul. When I have bitachon, when I'm willing to trust in somebody or something else, I can, I can find a sense of tranquility. 
Many of us live it, but just imagine needing to constantly be worrying about whether or not there's going to be rent money in a few months or whether we're going to have food on the table. If we're worried and constantly feeling tension, we will never have a Shabbat where we can rest and let someone else be in charge. We will never be able to let go, focus on other things like our relationships and spiritual lives. We'll never be able to take a breath and just appreciate the blessings that we have. The peace of mind that bitachon is meant to bring us is significant. And another risk, another risk of what happens when, we, when, we're, when we're having weak bitachon is that when we do fail, we see it as personal and it's our fault. And we get, and we get anxious about things. It's all on us. It's, it's all about us. We have to complete the job, pay the bills, et cetera. There's nobody else we can rely on. This would be a world of hishtalut without bitachon. There's an example. Uh, I, read, I heard this on the podcast Hidden Brain the other day. There was a ship in 1859 called the Royal Charter. There's a picture of it, or at least a picture that came up on Google. It was, a, it was a ship. In this case, it was sailing, I believe, on return, on its return leg from Australia to Liverpool. It had a group of individuals on it, including those returning from the gold fields of Australia. Many died in this shipwreck, including a number who had such little bitachon and such a reliance on the material world that it was the gold that they mined. It was the gold that they mined in Australia that killed them. They had sewn gold into their belts and into their pockets, and they didn't want to risk losing their gold. They kept it on them the whole time. And they sank. They drowned. It was too heavy. And that very gold ended up leading them to their deaths. Meanwhile, much of that gold from the ship actually ended up washing ashore. And it actually made some beachgoers very wealthy, very happy. These individuals, unfortunately, put their trust in their wealth and in their gold and not in Hashem. They had Hishtad loot. They took an initiative and responsibility. They went to go get rich. They went to, to get their gold. And they were really afraid to lose it, as I think a lot of us can, 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 uh, you know, can empathize with. But they were so afraid that they gave up their lives for it. They, they, they didn't have this bigger vision or trust in something else that would take care of them, even if they lost their gold. This is hishtalut without bitachon. And at the other end, we have this level of trust that God will provide. God will provide my efforts purposeless. That would be bitachon without any hishtadlut. A person on this end takes what most would be considered to be major risks, perhaps recklessly so. This person will find, will, thinks they will find success even if they don't work for it. As we said earlier, they think they don't need to go to the doctor because Hashem is a healer. Why bother with modern science, with medication, science, shmayance? So we see that bitachon like other midot, is on a spectrum. And the balanced place is one where one trusts, one has bitachon, one trusts that there is a will in this world and that what happens in this world is meaningful, either in itself or as a result of our efforts at meaning-making. That we trust there's a will in this world and that what happens is meaningful. It might not be good. It might be bad, but it's meaningful. 
And where Bitachon not only asked me to do that, but it also asked me to actively take a role if I want to succeed. And even if I don't succeed, the effort is significant. So that's Bitachon for us right now. Where does this concept of Bitachon appear in the Torah? Well, as far as Hishtadlut, about the effort part of Bitachon, we see that almost everywhere. It would be almost comical to note all the places where we're called to action. But suffice it to say, we are people of mitzvah. We are people of, we're people of the book and we're a people of the mitzvah, a people of commanded action. We don't say Shema, affirming our belief in Hashem and God's oneness, and call it a day. We don't just say Shema and call it a day. We then recite Ve'ahavta and Ve'hayayim Shamoa and Vayomer, other paragraphs, all related to taking action in our ritual in our family lives and professional lives, which was at the time agricultural. Nothing just happens on its own. When we stood, if you remember, if we stood at, when we stood at the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptians trailing behind us, Moses tells the Israelites to hang tight, stand by and watch what God will do for us, Moses says. God will fight for us. And then unsolicited, what happens? God calls out to Moshe, why are you yelling? Why are you crying out to me? Well, there's an obvious reason. Well, we're supposed to cry out to God when we're in trouble, aren't we? Mina meitzer karatia. From the narrow places I called out to God. But the answer is not in the form of a miracle here. Rather, what is God's response? Daber el b'nei Talk to the people of Israel and tell them, time to go. Move forward on your own. And you, Moses, lift up your staff, hold it over the sea so that the Israelites will march into the sea on, on dry ground, not that they would stay put or stand by. And then, as many of us have learned, it took a brave person by the name of Nachshon, Nachshon ben Aminadab, to jump in there until the water got up to his neck for the sea to split. On the one hand, it was a miracle that the Red Sea split and we made it to safety. On the other hand, our hishtadlut, our efforts, demonstrated some level of trust that things would work out. And it helped to give God permission to bring about that miracle of the splitting of the sea. And yet, this bitachon doesn't last very long. Remember all those grumblings through our wanderings in the desert? Well, Rav Wolbe explains with a thought that we've discussed before, that developing midot takes time and repetition, a one-time display of, of, of bitachon, and the amazement and the appreciation that comes with a one-time miracle on display does not make someone a trusting person. It does not make them someone full of bitachon. That's where the ritualized, repetitive displays of bitachon come in, and that's during our wandering in the desert, when we receive the gift of the man, the man, or the manna bread. For 40 years, we Jews ate manna bread. And manna, like the Aramaic word, which is man, man means in Aramaic, who? Whose bread? Where's this bread coming from? Who can I rely on for this bread? Literally, manna means in Aramaic, man, who? Whose is this? Who, who's doing this? One, this was, this, this, this manna was our, was our test. It was our test. It was our opportunity to, to practice bitachon. One doesn't practice bitachon, one doesn't practice trust when all is fine and dandy. It's especially those moments of uncertainty when we're wandering, 
when we're, you know, when we, when it's these moments of uncertainty, when bitachon is activated. Imagine being reliant on someone else, an invisible force named Hashem here for 40 years to provide food and just enough to get through the day until tomorrow when God would then provide for another day's supply. Let's, let's read the text. Let's read the text together. Let's read the text uh, directly in Exodus. It says, then said God to Moshe, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain portion every day that I may test them, whether they follow my Torah or not. And Moshe said to them, this is the thing which God has commanded. This is later on. Gather, I want to pay attention to the verbs. Gather of it every person according to their eating. An omer for every person. According to the number of your persons shall you take it. Every person for them who are in their tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they did measure it with an omer, one that gathered much had nothing over, nothing left over. And one that gathered little had no lack. Moshe said, let no person leave of it till the morning. But they hearkened not to Moshe, but some of them left of it until the morning and it bred worms and stank. Wow. Okay. Notice the dynamics here, the interactions between effort and control and trust. The Israelites really needed to step up to the plate here. They had to gather. You notice how many times the word gather appears there? So many times. The verse say over and over and over again. The manna wasn't ordered on DoorDash. It was delivered, but not to the person's convenient location. It's like when you order the Uber, you can, uh, for, for a discount, you can, you can walk five minutes. And this is, this is what happened here. The Israelites had to act. The Israelites had to act. They had to go out and fetch their sustenance. And when they got there, they couldn't take too much. They had to let go of this need for control. They had to let go of the need for control to control the future. That's one of the hardest things that Bitachon is learning to let go that there are things I can't control. It was in God's hands. It was in God's hands what would come the next day. And today, we are not asked to plan only one day in advance, right? This was a unique situation for the Israelites. But we are challenged to collect enough. And we do need a little cushion. But how significant does that need to be when we're saving? How significant does that cushion need to be? It might be different for every one of us. Some of us may feel the need for more, some less. Either way, the important thing in Bitachon is to have some trust, whether it's deep down or more evident that we aren't the decisors of our fate. We can save a lot, but the, market, but the market can crash tomorrow. Why do you think letting go of control is so difficult? Just think about that. What happens when we don't let go of the need for control? Who does that impact and how? How do I know when I put in enough effort and it's time to let something beyond me determine how things will proceed? Rabbeinu Bachya, Rabbeinu Bachya ibn Pakuda explains that it's precisely in the choices we make regarding things that are external to us, like food, like the mana, drink, clothing, shelter, sexual relations. It's precisely in the choices we make about these things that we're tested with bitachon. Hashem gives us, through mitzvot and other things, means and times for acquiring and engaging in all of these things. We have legal ways of, to go about it. And when we follow those, we, we show bitachon. But when we try to break the law, 
or acquire these things in extra legal ways, that's where bitachon seems to be less prominent. This year, actually, uh, as a special year, I'm sure you will learn about it with Rav Shmuley, it's a Shemitah year. It's a Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, where in the seventh year, the farms in the land, the, 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 the land in the land, the farms in the land of Israel uh, remain fallow. Shemitah itself, by the way, is also, we can say, a bitachon year. Shemitah year is a bitachon year. Why? Well, first of all, first of all, it activates our emuna mida, our mida of faith, our belief, because we are acknowledging by letting the land rest that it's not ours to control. There's that control again. It's God's or Mother Nature herself. I believe land. I think I'm pretty sure land actually needs time to rest if you want it to produce most effectively. And it also requires bitachon. Shemitah requires bitachon because we leave the land unworked for the whole year. And this is probably not the way to sustain ourselves or succeed when the average Israelite's job is agriculture, to be a farmer. They're literally on a sabbatical. The Torah uses the root, no pun intended, uh, of bitachon actually in the context of Shemitah. So here we go, Shemitah. We'll just read it in English here, right? You shall perform my statutes, keep my ordinances, and perform them. This is all talking about Shemitah in context, according to Rashi. Then you will live on the land securely. La vetach. Vetach, vetach, vetach. There's our word. Batuach, bitachon. We are going to live on the land securely with bitachon. And the land will then yield its fruit, and you will eat to satiety and live upon it securely. Lavetach, bitachon. Again, we are commanded to do the mitzvot, in particular Shemitah. And when we do, right, when we do this hishtalut, when we actually do the mitzvot, when we do the actions, we are, we are able to live in the land of Israel with bitachon. And we can be, we can be batuach. We can be sure that the land will yield its fruit enough. Naturally though, if you take a year off of work, you might worry. Where's my food going to come from? And so it continues. And if you should say, and if you should say, I say I don't have it here exactly, but trust, my, trust me here. If you should say, what will we eat in the seventh year? We will not sow. We will not gather in our produce. If we say that, God says, I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year, and it will yield produce for three years. Okay. So, we will have plenty of food. In the sixth year, in the sixth year of the cycle, the year before Shemitah, we will get a total of three years of produce. One for the Shemitah year. Two for the additional years it takes for the crops to grow after Shemitah. Did we forget about that? This makes Shemitah a much bigger test of bitachon, I think, than we thought at first. It's not just one year off of work in reliance on God for food. It's three whole years of relying on God for food. The Chazon Ish, Chazon Ish, a very famous rabbi in Israel, 20th century, wrote an off-quoted piece uh, on faith and trust. And he says that, as we said, emunah is faith, uh, emunah faith is theory, and bitachon is practice. As an aside, there's a, there's a halacha that we must collect, that we must connect geulah and tefillah when we're praying that the, the sections of the prayer talking about redemption and liberation need to connect directly to the Amidah prayer, 
without a break. So the, the Musar masters tried to explain why, what is, why, why do we have to connect the, the, the Amidah to the, uh, to, the, to the sections about redemption and, and, and liberation? And one of the answers is, is that the, um, when we contemplate liberation and redemption from Egypt, that's theoretical. But when we actually pray the Amidah and we make those requests, those 18, 19 requests, that's practice. That's actually showing I'm trusting because I'm asking for something. So that's, that's the interesting application of the faith, uh, faith being theory and bitachon being practice. One can believe, supposedly, all they want, but when the going gets tough, oftentimes, emunah doesn't actually translate into strong bitachon. What we're dealing with is acting on that belief. Shemitah serves as a prime example of both emunah and bitachon, especially during times which are so uncertain. Just as B'nai Yisrael went 40 years, 40 years of relying on God for mana, after three years of relying on God for crops and sustenance, we can hope that they and we would progress in this Mida and trust in God, not just when times are hard and uncertain, but during normal times as well. One additional thing we should note, I think, about Shemitah here is that the dialogue suggests that the people are worried, right? If they say, oh, but where's our food going to come from? The people are worried. And the Torah is telling us, don't worry. It's okay. You don't have to be worried. As much, of, as, much as bitachon is about hishtalut, about gathering and acting and knowing when to do that, there's an emotional component, which we mentioned earlier. It's the minuchat hanefesh, the tranquility, the serenity, the calmness, the not worrying. Nobody wants, I, I know this because I've, I, when I was younger, I used to say to my mom, calm down. And she would say, stop telling me to do that. Um, nobody, be, nobody wants to be told to calm down. It's not helpful. But maybe encouraging a big picture view, if we were to visualize a big picture view, an arc of history, or an image of a caring God who tries to reassure us that we'll be okay, maybe that'll help. We actually see this explicitly in the language of Havdalah. Um, after I saw this, I don't think I'll be able to look at Havdalah again in the same way. Um, so taken from the book of Isaiah, we see, it says, in that day, you shall say, I give thanks to you, O Lord. Although you were wroth with me, your wrath has turned back and you comfort me. Behold, the God who gives me triumph, I am confident, unafraid. For Yah, the Lord is my strength and might, and he, or God, has been my deliverance. Joyfully shall you draw water from the fountains of triumph. This is that for here. Hine, behold, God who gives me triumph, who, 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 who uh, provides me with salvation. There's that word, I will be confident. I will be sure. I will be trusting. I will be trusting and I will not be afraid. It's striking that we say this at Havdalah, which is a very dark time. A very dark time. When we're leaving this, this, this time of Minuchat HaNefesh, Shabbat is about Minuchat HaNefesh, is about tranquility and calmness and relaxation, not worrying about where our next meal is going to come from, because if you're keeping Shabbat in a traditional way, even on Friday, your meal for tomorrow, it's already ready. 
at this time when Shabbat is leaving us, when we are losing our extra soul, as the sages say, it can be scary. It's dark out there. And the Midrash talks about how Adam was very afraid when it was getting dark. Uh, the first, the first Havdalah ever. Um, there's a whole story we're not going to get into, it, but he was very afraid. Adam was very afraid that the world was coming to an end. It was the first sunset he'd ever seen. So imagine you had sinned and all of a sudden you see the sun starting to set, or at least after you know, several hours, uh-oh, the world's coming to an end. Don't worry. Trust me. There's no need to be afraid. It's times like these, it's times of darkness when we are most challenged to, to adopt pitachon, to practice pitachon, and to try our best to not be afraid, to not worry, to imagine a loving presence, a presence that we trust supporting us. I want to jump to the book of Jeremiah before, um, before we're going to go into some practice. The book of Jeremiah brings a very beautiful image about the power of bitachon. The book writes in Jeremiah, two evils have my people committed. They have forsaken me, a source of living water or spring, a makor mayim chayim, to hew themselves cisterns, barot, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. God says, they've, the Jewish people have forsaken me. Here I am, a spring. What else could you want? A spring of, of natural flowing water to this cistern, which is cracked and holds no water. By the way, we saw also in Havdalah, in our text above, there's the water imagery as well. Joyfully shall you draw water from the fountains of triumph. There's the water. Water is associated with trust. It's bitachon. The difference between these two things, the makor ma'im chayim, the spring on the one hand, and the cistern on the other, I would say are twofold. One is, is that a cistern is man-made, and the other one is natural. And one's water, the spring flows from its original source. Whereas in the cistern's case, the water has been brought from somewhere else. There's something here about the people not trusting sufficiently. It reminds me a bit of the mana, how sometimes collecting things like we would for a cistern actually leads us to losing them. There's that case of the gold we saw earlier with the ship. Sometimes we collect too much, we lose it. Rather than relying on that which is man-made and unreliable and cracked, Jeremiah is telling us that we really should be looking at the original source to connect with God firsthand, as it were. Not to trust in other things, but to trust in God. Not to the, the objects of our creation. The water thing continues in the book of Jeremiah. Cursed is the person who trusts solely in people. It makes their own might their source of strength and turns away from God. Get this image. It's a beautiful image. They will be like a tree in the desert and will not see when good comes. They will inhabit the parched places of the desert, a salty, uninhabited land. And here it is. Blessed is the person who trusts in God, who has bitachon, for whom God is a refuge. For they shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreads out its roots by the river and shall not see when the heat comes, but its leaf shall be green and shall not be anxious in the year of droughts, nor shall it cease from yielding fruit. Rabbi David Jaffe notes that water 
quote, water is the source of well-being. A tree with its roots by the water is always connected to its source, to this source of life and vitality. Bad things may happen like a drought or heat, but because of this connection to the source of life, the tree keeps creating and producing fruit. Having bitachon doesn't mean bad things won't happen. There will be famine. There will be drought. The person with bitachon, though, says Rabbi Jaffe, will not get confused by suffering, but will be able to stay life-affirming and generative for self and others. Bitachon here is meant to be the source. Or God, bitachon in God is meant to be this. We're supposed to have bitachon in the source. And we're supposed to identify what are the sources of renewal when we face challenges? This is a question. What are the sources of, what are our sources of renewal when we face challenges? What is that water source that we're tapping into and that we wish we could always, you know, touch with, with our hands, with our feet, with our body, that we can hold on to, have a connection to? When do we feel like we're in famine or drought? And when do we need that water? Can we rely on this source of renewal to give us a renewed sense of energy? And even when the going gets tough, how can I make sure my leaves stay green, that I stay connected, that I stay rooted to the source of my growth and existence? I want to close with a Talmudic character, again, one of Rabbi Akiva's teachers by the name of Nahum Ish Gamzu. A lot of interesting things about Nahum Ish Gamzu. <clears throat> he was an individual, he was blind in both eyes. Both of his arms were amputated. Both of his legs were amputated and his entire body was covered in boils and he lived in a dilapidated house. He wasn't always like this. He actually almost, I think, prayed for these things to happen to him um, because as a form of repentance for, for failing to support somebody else in a, in a prior incident and he was just so distraught over it and, and this was his form of, of repentance. But if you notice his name, Nahum Gamzu, it's not exactly a, a common name. So the Talmud asks, why did they call him Nahum of Gamzu? Nahum Ish Gamzu, literally Nahum, person, also this. So Nahum, the person of also this. Why do they call him that? The reason is that with regard to any matter that occurred to him, he would say, this too is for the good. Gamzu Latova, Nahum Ish Gamzu. Gamzu, Gamzu Once the Jews wished to send a gift to the house of the emperor, they said, who should go and present the gift? Let Nahum Ish Gamzu go, as he is accustomed to miracles. They sent with him a, ch a chest full of jewels and pearls, and he went and spent the night in a certain inn. During the night, these residents of the inn arose and took all the precious jewels and pearls from the chest and filled it with earth. The next day, when he saw what happened, Nahum of Gamzu said, Gamzu Latova. This too is for the good. And the Talmud shares a few other anecdotes like this. I want us to just to be very uh, perhaps analytical here in his name or in what he says. I, I thought about this the other night when I was at dinner with a friend. We were having a discussion about this, actually. And this came to me. He doesn't say Gamzu Tov. He doesn't say this is good. He says, Gamzu le tova. This too is for, is, is for the good. 
meaning he's not saying that these terrible things, in this case, losing these jewels, but there are other incidents that happen. He's not saying that these things are good. He's not, because I don't think any of us could, could say that. But he is saying, as we said in the beginning of Tbitachon, that these things can be good. This is for the good. And maybe sometimes it's hard, or oftentimes it's hard to actually make sense of like, well, what good is coming from this? Or when will this good come? But the idea at least is aspirational here, that what if when something happened, something bad happened, we tried to see what good come, could come from it. What good could come from it? There are situations, um, you know, I, I need not name them, which I think that this image of bitachon is very hard to apply to. Tragedies in the world, death, many things. But in our day-to-day, in our day-to-day, which is what Musar asks us to do, is to deal with the day-to-day. Are we able to take the, the small challenges that life throws at us and to take a gamzu latova, a bitachon, a, a feeling of, I can make meaning of this, that what's happening to me or what I'm doing is, where, is, is, is meant to happen in some sense, that there's meaning in it, that it's part of a plan. Even if I don't know what that plan is, I can still be sad and I can mourn and I can be so upset that I don't know the reasons for things and that I, I wish and I'm angry that, that I would see the end of this story because I don't know if I believe that everything's for the good. But I think there's something to this idea that if we do try to take this attitude of bitachon, we can end up in a place of menuchat hanefesh. We could end up more tranquil and in a calm place, in a place with, with inner peace. So how do we, what are some ways that we could practice bitachon? Here are some things I came up with, or I, or I saw elsewhere, I made up on my, on my own. I welcome you to, to look at them and to, to share some of your own strategies. But I would say the following. One, consider your needs and your wants. Are all of your needs being fulfilled, even if your wants are not being fulfilled? That's something I would, I would challenge us to ask. What are our needs? What are our wants? And if our needs are being provided for, then maybe, maybe that would help us appreciate a little bit more and trust that things are okay for us. Another one, this is, this is a challenging one. Try helping someone we feel competitive with, knowing that what will be will be. Meaning maybe there's someone at work I compete with. Maybe there's someone I, you know, I mean, I can speak for, you know, someone, someone in, in the rabbinic field I might feel competitive with. Um, and, you know, I sometimes feel when I see them succeeding, it's hard for me. It's the truth. What if I help them? I help, what if I help them? I think that would demonstrate some trust that perhaps what goes around will come around. Um, but also just that, I don't know. I think, I think, I think when people demonstrate confidence, when they are nice to those, they don't need to be nice to. Um, when they do things they don't have to do um, or things to their detriment, sometimes that can demonstrate confidence. Another idea is to ask ourselves, when we do or don't do something out of fear, notice that we're doing it out of fear or not doing it out of fear. And we should ask ourselves, what are we so afraid of? And why are we so afraid of that thing? The Musar masters would actually place um, their students in uncomfortable places. If somebody was afraid of the dark, they said, this is, you know, years ago, if someone was afraid of the dark, they would send them to the, uh, 
the cemetery and have them, you know, sleep there at night. Kind of creepy, not going to lie. Don't think that would fly in today's pedagogical uh, universe. Um, but the idea there is to put ourselves in, in risky, in a healthy way, only healthy, a risky and perhaps uncomfortable situations, more like challenging situations, and see what happens. Don't run away from challenge, at least once a week, a day. Do something that feels like a stretch and see what happens. Do you emerge unscathed? Have you grown from that experience? Can you confidently enter that situation in the future? Another few, few, uh, few suggestions. Once a day, make a decision. Act, just make a decision and act as if you have trust in God. Just act like it, even if you don't. Part of Musar is acting. And you know, sometimes if you act a certain way, you end up coming to actually embody it in a real way. Another suggestion, when we are feeling overworked, overwhelmed or burned out, or ideally before we get to that point, take a break. Take a break. Trust that the world will continue and you will be okay. It's like taking five minutes sometimes just to meditate or just to close one's eyes. Not going to hurt you. You know, the work's going to be there when you need it or the work's going to be there when you're done. But if you realize that the world will continue, sometimes that allows us to actually practice self-care a bit more. Don't get burned out. Or if we do get burned out, it's okay to just put the pencils down, close the laptop and just be present and trust that, you know, you don't have to keep on working. Another, meditate on your own source of renewal. Contemplate where the energy, where you're getting your energy from. How is it being sustained? Reflect on that source. Is that, is that God? Is it a relative, a, a relative who's passed away that's inspiring you? What is this connection? What is your water that's, 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 that you're, that's you know, infusing your roots and keeping your leaves green? And then lastly, I would say, think about a successful moment or an achievement. And who were all the parties that had to work together to get you there? Who did you have to rely on? Who did you have to trust? We wouldn't be able to get to where we are without other people, period. Um, and for those of us with trust issues, I think if we realize how much we've needed other people to get to where we are, that can help us at least appreciate the need to trust a bit more. So I'm going to stop there. And I want to open it up to us to discuss this, this concept, which is both theological and interpersonal, right, of having trust in something greater than ourselves. Right, that things that happen are part of some grand scheme. It's hard. Um, but, but the idea of Vitachon is, again, it doesn't have to be God only. It could be other people in our lives. And so I, I guess I would ask, what is that source of renewal and energy? You know, where are you, who, who or what are you putting your, your roots into that helps feed you, that helps, you know, keep you going? For me, um, it's absolutely God. There have been many things that have happened over throughout my life where I've prayed to God for things to happen or not happen, and they have. And um, so for me, he's got my back, even in tough times. 
Thank you. I think as the child of a Holocaust survivor, um, it's really, really hard to just have faith in Hashem. Um, I try, but it's not easy. And I really think, I mean, my dad, after the show, I still stayed a, an observant Jew, but I think it was out of practice. I don't know how much faith he had. Um, where I get my inspiration faith, you know, the Beatles song, I get by with a little help from my friends. I'd be lost without my friends. Thank you. Hi, so, so yeah, um, my faith is in God and I think God sends me people. So, so, and, and I think when the right people are in my life, that that's a, a blessing from Hashem. And I just, so I wanted to ask a question though, that um, that ship example those guys with all the gold weighing them down. What if they had faith in God? And they thought that God was going to save them, even with all that gold in their pockets. And, and how do you know when, when you're misdirected in, in, in where you're placing your trust? So that's something that I struggle with and think about. So trust issues <laughs> thank you Yehuda. yeah i think i think bitachon can can be very too much bitachon can be very harmful right and i think sometimes we need to check ourselves and see what what's the impact of our bitachon of our of our faith and our you know convictions to our truths and if you recall in our first session i think we talked about this about uh, people uh, would would sort of excommunicate other people thinking that they were you know acting in the name of god um, uh, but in fact, it was their own, you know, bad midot, their bad traits that were causing them to do that. They were misguided. Um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Um, I can't answer it, but I think that, I think one, one sort of marker is, 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 is this helping people? Is this helping the world? Um, in this particular case, it was leading to death. Um, and I think we also were given brains and we have to do a calculation and the Torah says, and the rabbis say, we don't rely on miracles. And if I have, you know, 100 pounds or 20, 100, 200 pounds of gold on me, the physics, physics doesn't lie. Um, so in this particular case, you know, they might have a lot of, uh, they might have a lot of bitachon, but they really need to think more about the hishtalut, about that effort. So it's that, it's a kind of the yin and yang there. Yeah, See, I, I, I feel, Yeah, Randy. I feel that, that God knows our intentions. I feel that if possibly the people on the ship would have said, oh, let's use this gold to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and, and let's just help people make this world a better uh, world, this world a better place with all this gold, you know, maybe God would have saved them. But if they were only thinking of themselves, so I feel that God knows our motives and I feel sometimes what goes around comes around. Yeah. 
Thank you, Randy. The Torah says that, that Hashem is bochen klayot. Looks, God looks inside of us. God cares about our intentions. Absolutely. Yeah. Eileen, yeah, I see your hands up. So this may be a little bit simplistic, but I have bitachon. Um, I have trust and faith in my family. Um, we all know that we don't always say the right things. At times we say the wrong things. But I think we have tra- trust and faith that our intentions are, are correct and they're right and they're just. And when you have those kinds of feelings of, of uh, trust and faith with intention, you know that your family or for that matter, anybody else that you have relationships with, they have your back and you have their back as well. So it's a reciprocal relationship, trust and faith in whatever you do. And never second guess yourself because whether it's whether there's a higher source, Hashem looking over, or it's just the way things are, things happen, bashert uh, for a reason, and and goodness always comes out of those reasons. Lovely. Well, thank you everyone for sharing um, all of that wisdom. And of course, Rabbi Warren, can you just mention what's coming up next week? And then I will sign us off. Sure. Yeah. Next week, we're going to be learning about Bechira, which is really sort of the entry point actually into Musar, which is about choice, choice points and how um, we all are held accountable for different, you know, we we all are held accountable to our own standards for the choice that we make. Um, And we hope that in the practice of Musar and character development, that we start where we are. Um, you have no expectations of where you're supposed to start. Um, we start with where we are. So we're going to be learning about choice. Uh, and then we're going to do a little bit of a summary, a summary and, uh, and some more reflections of, of the last uh, you know, nine, nine weeks. It'll be 10 next week. Great. Well, thank you so much, everyone.